Bible, can you turn please to John? No, not John. We'll get to John in a minute. Go to Psalm 80 and then go to Isaiah 5. See if you can find both of those. Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. We are in a a series looking at what Jesus said about himself. Not what I say about him, not what other preachers or book writers or anybody else says about him. What are the things that he specifically said about himself, which then reveal to us his character, who he is, what he came to do, and what we're being invited into for those of us that, that follow him. And the intention of this is just to make sure that at this particular time, in, in history, the, none of us have ever experienced anything like this before, and we want to just get our gaze absolutely firmly and fully focused on Jesus. It's not a time for sort of nifty, nifty messages um, about how to live your life better. It is a time for absolutely focusing on him. Hope you're enjoying the journey so far. We have looked at the fact that he is the bread of life. Against the background of the Passover in John chapter 6, he declared himself to be not only the one, uh, although he fed a multitude in the wilderness, he says, I'm not only the one who gives you bread, he says, I am the bread of life. The Feast of Tabernacles in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. I don't just give you light, I'm not just here to remind you of the pillar of fire that gave you light in the wilderness, I am the light. In John 10, he's at the Feast of Dedication, They're thinking about the bad shepherds who had led Israel in the past or failed to lead Israel, who had given up on Israel and abandoned their responsibilities. And we heard Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. And then last week, we were at the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this week, about... Probably about an hour ago, this, this suddenly turned into a two-part message because I realized it was getting too long. And to deal with what, what I want to do this morning, well, just can't be done in 35 or 40 minutes. And it's, I, I don't want to rattle on on YouTube for longer. So we're going to split this into two parts. We will eventually be going to John 15. But let's start off with Psalm 80. And Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, verse 11. Psalm 80, verse, sorry, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. I'll stop there. So verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. What did God bring out of Egypt? He brought Israel out of Egypt, but they are being referred to as a vine that produces grapes. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. So that's Psalm 80. Let's go to Isaiah 5, where we'll read a little bit more about the vine. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one, this is God, my loved one had a vineyard, 
on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, there's a, there's a common occurrence in our house these days where I walk into the kitchen, and as I walk into the kitchen, I hear the door of the fridge closing. And standing at the fridge, there is a young man called Samuel with his cheeks sort of all puffed out like that, full of grapes, stuffed full of grapes, smiling from ear to ear. He loves grapes, and he feasts on grapes all the time. I go to the fruit and veg shop and get a large bag of grapes. And every time I have the same conversation with the lady at the till, she says to me, are you sure you want all of these grapes? And I'm like, yes, they will be gone tomorrow. He loves grapes. God loves grapes as well. He loves the fruit of the vine. And he uses the illustration of a vine for his people Israel repeatedly in the Old Testament. He likens the nation of Israel to a vine. And the purpose of a vine is to produce grapes. If it doesn't produce grapes that are sweet and juicy and can be used to make good new wine, then the the vine is, is no good. In fact, Ezekiel 15 also uses the language of a vine and tells us that a vine is no good if it's not producing grapes. It's not as if you can take the wood and do something else with the wood. Ezekiel says you can't even take the wood of a vine and make it into a peg to hang something on. It is, it's just not wood that you can work with. The only purpose and point of a vine is to produce grapes, to produce fruit. And the vine in the Old Testament is Israel. The, the nation, those who were descended from Abraham, who lived in the land, they were the vine. And this symbol was a big deal for them. So in the temple, there was a, a vine made out of gold that was there in the temple. And the grapes on that vine made out of gold were about, or the bunches of grapes were about the height of a man. Whenever the Jews revolted against the Romans in the AD 60s, One of the things that you did whenever you revolted against another country that was ruling you was you then started to mint your own coins as a sign that you were independent of that other country. And whenever Israel revolted and minted their own coins, they had a vine stamped into the coins. This 
image was very, very important to them. Whenever the spies in Numbers, Joshua and Caleb and the other guys that went into the promised land to spy it out way back in the book of Numbers, one of the things they brought back was a huge bunch of grapes that was so big that it had to be tied to a pole and carried in between two guys who had the pole on their shoulders. This is a really strong illustration that runs through the Bible. God's people are a vine. God wants fruit. He wants the vine to produce. And the idea is that for Israel, that the other nations would come to Israel and be able to eat of the fruit that Israel produced. So the question has to come then, what is the fruit? When I say that God loves grapes and, and that his people Israel are a vine, what is the fruit? The fruit is to show the world the character of God. All right, so in this whole illustration, this metaphor of a vine, whenever God says, I came looking for grapes, I came looking for fruit, what he is saying is, I wanted my people to show the world what I'm like. To talk about bearing fruit, whether that's as a Christian or whether that's in the Old Testament as one of the people of Israel, to bear fruit meant that the character of God was coming forth from your life as an, indi- and as, as an individual and as the, the corporate nation. In Isaiah 5, if you still have it open, verse 7, look at what God comes looking for. I looked for justice and for righteousness. And for God, justice does, does not just mean bad guys getting punished. Justice means fighting for the oppressed. It means looking after the downtrodden, the weak, the poor, the broken. When God says, I'm a God of justice, it's not primarily a threat against bad people. It is a promise to people who need help, who need justice, who need someone to stand on their behalf and pick them up. God wants justice and he wants righteousness. That's the sort of fruit that he's looking for among his people. What God wants in Israel is a group of people that others can come to and look at and say, that's what God is like. I went to Israel and I spent time looking at people in Israel and that's what God is like. That's what he wants others to do, to come to his people and get an accurate representation of him. I think sometimes in Christianity, we get the wrong idea of fruit, and we think that whenever God says that he wants us to bear fruit, we get it in their head that he means he wants us to make converts. He wants us to coerce people into following Jesus, and that that's our fruit. Look, God, I bore fruit this week because I've got three more people to follow you. No, that is not the fruit. The fruit is not making converts. The fruit is the character of God being produced in your life, both as an individual and as a community. So hold this all in mind. Old Testament people of God, Israel described as a vine. God wants fruit and the fruit is that his character would be reproduced in his people. But he's disappointed in Isaiah 5. It says, let's read verse 2 again. He dug it up. So this is a picture of God, the gardener, going and preparing the ground for the vine. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. 
He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. He goes on in verse 4 to say, what more could have been done for my vineyard? Okay, he's worked really, really hard to get everything ready for his vine. But at the end of verse 2, then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Don't think about grapes here. Think about character. He looked for a people that accurately represented him to the world, but it yielded only bad fruit. Have you ever bought fruit that looked good and it sort of felt good? You can look at it in the shop and to a certain extent, you know, not, not these days obviously, but you can, you can lift it and you can, you can tell whether it's soft or not. And, and it looks good and it feels good and you buy it and then you bite into it and it goes out the window of the car because it's tasteless. I can tell you with out a hint of arrogance or pride that the best apples in the world come from my garden from about mid-August until late October, early November. And the reason they are the best apples in the world is because I can bite into them one second after they have been taken off the tree. As soon as the apple's taken away from the tree and it sits in boxes or in storage or gets transported to shops, it's starting to lose its flavor. It's starting to lose its texture. But when you pick fruit and you eat it immediately when it is literally just being disconnected from the branch, from the tree, it tastes incredible. And then you eat your last apple from the garden round about late October, early November, and you realize, I'm not going to get to enjoy this again until next August. Every other apple will be substandard. Tasteless fruit is so disappointing. When it looks good, but it lacks flavor. And God is so disappointed in Israel, who was meant to bear fruit, but didn't do it. He's going to have to do something about the fact that the vine has not produced fruit. The fact that his people have not shown the world what he is like. That was the call of Israel. That is the call of the church or the Christian to show the world authentically what God looks like. He needs an authentic vine. Because the original vine has failed. He needs a real vine, a genuine article, an authentic vine. Now let's go to John 15. Where Jesus says at the start of the chapter, I am the true vine. It's another one of his I am sayings. And I've said this every week, but just so you get what he's doing. In the Old Testament, I am is the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh. And it comes up in Exodus 3 whenever God reveals his character to, or his name to Moses at the burning bush. And then it comes up repeatedly as God reveals himself more and more to his people. Yahweh Shalom. I am your peace. Yahweh Jara, I am your provider. And Jesus does the same thing, particularly in John's gospel, where he says, I am, and then he fills in something after it. And on this occasion, he says, I am the true vine. Let's just read a few verses from the start of John 15. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me or abide in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what's God going to do about the vine that failed? He's going to instead present the true vine, the authentic vine. And Jesus, as he said this, if you just look at the the last phrase in chapter 14, let me just tell you in John's Gospels, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are all spoken in the context of the Last Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He washes the disciples' feet in in chapter 13, and then he begins to teach them about things that are going to happen and about the Holy Spirit in particular about the persecution that they will face. And at the end of chapter 14, he says, come now, let us leave. But then when you start chapter 15, he's still talking, I am the true vine. And what what scholars think has happened there is they have left the upper room at the end of chapter 14. They have begun to walk through the night towards the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested after he has prayed. And the conversation that he's having now, or the the teaching that he's given them now, in verses 15 and 16, is taking place on the road as they're walking. Come now, let us leave. And then as they walk along the road, they walk past the temple. And as they walk past the temple, they see the ornamental vine that I mentioned earlier with these massive golden grapes, And Jesus catches them looking over at it and he says to them, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. He is the authentic vine. He is not the Israel that failed. He's not a golden vine in the temple. He is the authentic, real, genuine article. And what he has just said is actually a huge statement. Now, we're going to look later on this morning and next week at some of the gardening imagery that's used here. But let me tell you, if you think this is just a cute story, pulling in some illustrations from the world of gardening, you've missed it. Because when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is initially saying something of incredible magnitude before he goes into the wonderful gardening imagery that he does use. He says that he is Israel. 
You've got to think back in the Old Testament. You see, let, let me just, I'm bouncing around here, but let me just tell you something as a wee hint. You cannot have the New Testament. See this, this bit here? You can't have Jesus outside of the context of this bit here. Jesus was born into the story and the history of Israel. He came to fulfill everything that Israel was meant to be. And you will have your lamp lit about who Jesus is when you know the story and the feelings of Israel in the Old Testament and how God worked with them. You can't just grab him, grab the New Testament and say, I don't need the rest of it. You do. You need to realize the bigger story that he is the center of. Where was I? Yeah, he says, so in in the Old Testament, Israel is the vine. He has now said, I am the true vine. Now, you better believe that every word he says at this moment counts. He is walking. Have you ever been in that moment where you know you're coming to the end uh, of an opportunity that you have to say something or do something and you're watching the clock? Every second counts. Every moment counts. Every word counts as he walks along this road with the disciples. He's not making small talk. And he declares to them this weighty statement that he has not made for three years. But on this last night that he's with them, he declares, I am the true vine. What does it mean? And even though he hasn't said it, if you've read the story carefully, you will have seen the fact that Jesus is replacing Israel. This may be new to some of you, but it just screams off the pages of the Gospels. Look at the history of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament went down into Egypt and then came back out of Egypt. And Jesus immediately after his birth went into Egypt to find safety from Herod and then came back out of Egypt. Israel is referred to as God's son. In Exodus 4, I think it's verse 22 or 23, Israel let my son go. Jesus, of course, is referred to as God's son. Israel, after they came out of Egypt, went through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized and goes through the waters of baptism in the Jordan, which Israel also passed through. Jesus spends 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus selected 12 men to follow him and be his close disciples. It's not because he had a problem with women. It's because Israel had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. He turned water into wine, whereas Moses and Israel turned water into blood. He saw the provision of bread in the wilderness, whereas Moses and Israel saw the provision of manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the perfect, true representation of what Israel was meant to be. And something you've got to get your head around as a Christian is the fact that he has redefined what it means to be Israel. He has reconstituted Israel around itself. He's basically saying to them, it does not matter anymore who your ancestors are. It does not matter that you're descended from Abraham. It does not matter that you're a Jew, that you received the law. None of it matters anymore. I am the only way to God. There is no other way. 
in the Old Testament, being part of Israel was the way to be the people of God. Jesus comes in and he now says, that's over because Israel failed. I am the true vine. I am the authentic representation of a son of God showing forth his character to the world. That's why he has said earlier in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one. And throughout John's gospel, you see him debating with the religious leaders who are repeatedly saying, we are the descendants of Abraham, we are Israel, and we're okay with God. And he's like, no, you're not. You're failing to show forth his character I am now the only way that you can connect with the life of God. So we have this picture of Jesus. And, and again, he couldn't, he couldn't have said this in front of the crowds. This is such a weighty, offensive statement to the leaders of Israel. He did not say this in public. He said it with his disciples on that last night. It was a massive thing. Massive thing. He has redefined what it means to be God's Israel. So now we have this picture of Jesus as the vine from which the life flows. And he says that we then, his followers, are the branches that are receiving that life. And we are meant then to bear fruit. God is the gardener. Some Bibles might say he's the vine dresser or even the husbandman. He's the one who looks after the vine. But the desired outcome is the same as it always was. God's desired outcome is fruit. He wants his vine to be full of luxurious, sweet, juicy fruit so that the world comes to it, tastes of it, and says, I want to be part of that. That's the purpose of the vine. And in case I forget to say it later or forget to come back to it next week, you need to know that God does not have two different people in the world. He does not on the one hand have Israel and on the other hand have the church. That is incorrect. It's not like God worked with Israel in the past and has now put Israel on the shelf and then has worked with the church, and at some stage will take the church away and bring Israel back off the shelf and work with them. That is completely unbiblical. There is one people of God on this planet, and it is the people who are connected to Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether they're a Jew, whether they're black or white, male or female, rich or poor, what class system they come from, none of that matters. There is one people of God and the defining feature of the people of God is that they are connected to the true vine, the true Israel, not the geographical nation of Israel or the ethnic people of Israel, but the true Israel who is Jesus. There is one people of God on this planet and any Jew who wants to be part of the people of God must be a follower of Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. So I'm the vine. You're the branches. God is the gardener. Now, 
we're going to do God's version of Gardener's World, right? And I have this little sort of closet secret that I watch Gardener's World. I know that's, you know, a bit daft maybe, but Monty Dawn rocks my world, Monty and his dogs and his garden. And uh, if, if, uh, if God was to replace Monty for a week, what would God teach us about gardening? Monty has had to adjust in lockdown and, and do all his videoing himself. If God was to show up and say, Monty, you've been busy, mate. Take a week off. Let me run the show for a week. What would God's gardening techniques be like? And I want to give you three of them. Three techniques for God's vine in terms of how he looks after his vine. Now, just to give you some hope, if you're watching the clock, I'm only going to do one this week. And then the other two we're going to pick up on next week and and finish this off. So what are God's gardening techniques? Technique number one then is in John 15 verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That's the first one. Now, I'm going to have to give you a wee sort of disclaimer here. What I'm about to do is going to rattle some of your cages. So just prepare to have your cage rattled. If you're on medication, take it now. Make sure you're sitting comfortably. I'm going to challenge uh, a commonly held view about this verse. And whether you agree with me or not, I hope you will actually take it seriously and think about it. One of the few advantages of preaching over YouTube is that you can't throw anything at me, Tim Hill, Mike Greer. No sweeties will be flying through the screen. So if you disagree with me, you're just going to have to chew on it. Many modern commentators are disagreeing with how we have translated John 15 verse 2. And I agree with them. There's a word in the verse, and in Greek it's the word aero, A-I-R-O. And in my Bible, the NIV that I've just read, it says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now that phrase, cuts off, is how they have translated the word aero. Now you need to stick with me because this is sweet. Let's be clear about this branch. He says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He cuts off every branch in me. This branch is in the vine. I'm going to to argue that cuts off is wrong, that it is a wrong translation of the Greek word arrow. And I'll get to that in a minute. But this branch, you need to understand that this branch is in the vine. Right, you get in that verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me. So we're talking about a branch here that's connected to the vine. It is not lying on the ground beside the vine, disconnected from it. It's not leaning on the vine. It's not pretending to be the vine. It is connected to the vine. And we see later on, I read verse 6 earlier, if anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. So there are branches that are not connected to the vine for whatever reason, have chosen not to be connected to the vine, not to receive the life 
and the health of the vine and therefore not to bear fruit. But in verse 6, those branches are clearly separate from it. They're not connected to it. They're taken away and burned. That's not a nice prospect. But that's what happens to branches that are not connected to the vine. In verse 2, the branch we're talking about is connected. Now tell me this, will God take a branch that's connected to the vine, that is connected to Jesus, and just cut it off and throw it away? Is that the character of the God that we read of throughout the Scripture? Will he cut off a branch that is not bearing fruit and just chuck it away. And if you've done any gardening with fruit, my limited experience, you will fight hard to save a fruit tree or a fruit bush because they take so long to grow, they take so long to come to maturity that you will not just chop off bits here and there that are, that are bugging you. You will try to make that thing bear fruit if it's still got any connection into the the trunk of the tree or whatever. Will God take a branch that is connected to Jesus, that is currently not bearing fruit, and just lop it off and discard it? Let me ask you, do you bear fruit every day? Do I bear fruit every day? What if a period of pressure or stress or trauma or tragedy or tiredness cause you on a particular day to not be particularly fruitful? What if on a particular day the pressure of life and work and lots of other things close in on you or close in on me and on that particular day I don't do a great job of representing the character of God to the world around me? Have you had days like that? No, liar, be honest with me now. Have you had days like that? where you know at the end of the day, you sit down, you lie down, and you reflect on the day, and you realize, I dropped the ball today. In that conversation with that person, I dropped the ball. I did not accurately represent the character of God to that person. I got it wrong. I was impatient. I was irritable, I was whatever, but I was not a good reflection of God in that moment. Have you done that? Of course you have. We all have. We've all sat at the end of a day and just thought, I didn't do a great job today. I didn't bear much fruit. Anyone who came to me today looking to eat the tasty fruit of the character of God didn't find much. Didn't find much. And do you think on days like that, do you lie in your bed and think, God is going to cut me off? God is going to remove me from the vine, Jesus, and discard me because I wasn't bearing fruit today? Did God throw you out of his church because you had a difficult period and didn't bear a lot of fruit? Did he cut you off and cast you away from Jesus? I don't think he did. In fact, I read of a Jesus earlier on in a book called The Gospel of John saying that he who comes to me, I will never cast out. Once you are connected to the vine, the vine will not cast you out. There are branches that are not connected and are withering and dying. They're not connected and never have been. 
But if you're connected to the vine, do you think he will cut you off because you're going through a difficult patch in your life and you're not as fruitful as you'd like to be? You're not authentically representing his character the way you'd like to be, but you're aware of it. Let's talk about this word arrow as we, as we draw things into a close for, for part one. A-I-R-O is how it would come from Greek over to English, arrow. I want you to know that it never in the Bible anywhere else is translated cut off. Never. This is the only place where for some reason it has been translated cut off. At no other point, and I have looked, at no other point is this word translated cut off. In Matthew 5 verse 30, Jesus does use the phrase cutting off. But he uses a different word in Greek, completely, not in any way related to this word. He talks about if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. The word is completely different from this one. This word is never used in the Bible anywhere else to mean cutting something off. What it is used for is to mean taking up. All right, now you can check me on this if you want. Feel free, go to Blue Letter Bible and play around there for, for a while. Matthew 14, 20, the disciples took up 12 baskets of leftovers. After Jesus fed the 5,000, told the disciples to go and gather up the leftovers, they took up 12 baskets. That's our word, arrow, taking up. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. There's our word, arrow, again, take up. In Matthew 27, describing Jesus on the way to his crucifixion, it says they compelled a guy called Simon to take up Jesus' cross. That's our word, arrow. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals the guy by the pool and he says to him, take up your bed and walk. That's our word, arrow. And one more, in John 8, 59, the religious leaders, the thieves that come to steal and kill and destroy, take up stones to stone him. And that's our word, arrow. Now, I want to emphatically make this point. That word that in John 15, verse 2, in my Bible and in lots of English Bibles is translated cuts off. I don't believe it means cuts off. Everywhere else that it's used, it means to take something up, take it up or to take it away. But it is primarily taking up. It is lifting something, lifting the cross, lifting the baskets of leftovers, lifting your bed and walk, lifting up stones to stone Jesus. That's what the word means everywhere else. Stick with me because we're going somewhere. Let me tell you how a vine dresser looks after his vine. And again, you will get this now in a lot of books and in, in listening to people who have gone and researched this by actually just going to a vineyard and chatting to the guy that looks after the vineyard. Frequently, young branches on the vine will trail along the ground. They have not yet developed the strength to grow along where the rest of the vines are growing and they will trail down along the ground. If they're on the ground... Stick with me now. Picture this vineyard, vine, and a branch trailing on the ground. If they're on the ground, they cannot bear fruit. The reason they can't bear fruit is that they're covered in dust and dirt, 
when it rains, that dust and dirt cakes over the little branch and it becomes a hard sort of covering on it. They're exposed to diseases when they're down there on the ground. They're exposed to you know, bugs and beetles and stuff that are living on the ground and they're not lifted up. They're not getting the energy from the sun. The branch is connected to the vine, but it's trailing on the ground in the dirt. And if you ask a vine dresser, a gardener in a vineyard, what he will do, he will tell you that he goes through his vineyard regularly with a bucket of water and a soft brush, like a paintbrush. And as he goes through the vineyard, he is looking for branches that are trailing on the ground. What does he do with them? I listened to one guy talking about his experience of interviewing a vine dresser. And the guy asked him, well, what do you do with those branches that are trailing on the ground that are down in the dirt? Do you cut them off? And the, the vine dresser said to him, no way. No way. It takes too long. There's too much has been invested in a branch to just chop it off because it's down in the dirt. You would never cut it off. In fact, he was aghast at the suggestion of cutting it off. He says, what I do is I gently lift up the branch. Now, get this. God is the vine dresser. You're the branch. I'm the branch. And for whatever reason, we're down in the dirt. And he does not come with the loppers and cut the branch off and chuck it away. He comes with a bucket of water and a brush and he gently lifts up the branch. He carefully washes all the dust and dirt off the branch. The stuff that was hindering the branch from bearing fruit, he lifts the branch up and he ties it into some sort of trellis or support that will keep it out of the dirt and allow it to receive the full light and heat of the sun in order to be able to bear fruit. A vine dresser will not cut off any branch that is still connected to the vine. He will not do it. Do you get and do you understand how that really resonates with the character of God when we read the verse that way? I have done nothing twisted. I have done no acrobatics with Scripture. I've taken that word and I'm showing you that that word everywhere else in the Scripture says lifting up, taking up, and it never ever means cutting off. And if we get our understanding of this verse wrong, we will have a picture of our Father God as some sort of ogre going around with his loppers ready to chop you off because you had a bad day. He does not do that. That is not the character of God. And some of you are downtrodden. Some of you, for whatever reason, whether it's your own choices or the choices of others, you know right now that you're trailing in the dirt a bit. You're not bearing a lot of fruit. You're not showing forth the character of God. And the image of your father that I want you to get this morning is not the image of him angrily standing over you ready to chop you off. It's the image of him bending down, getting down on his knees with water and with a brush and gently wanting to lift you out of that dirt and wash it off you and tie you up again to where you should be so that you can receive the light and bear the fruit. I believe this, this understanding of the verse is completely compatible with the good shepherd we looked at a few weeks ago. What does a good shepherd do with sheep that are weak? 
One of the pictures when we read a couple of weeks ago about the good shepherd, again, we went back to the Old Testament and the character of God. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. Listen to another passage that we read a couple of weeks ago about shepherds and about God being a shepherd in Ezekiel 34, verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Are you astray? Anybody listening to me? And you are, and you know you're astray. You're part of the flock of God. But for whatever reason, you are currently straying. He says, he doesn't say, I'm going to forget about you. I'm going to take my flock and move on to the next pasture and leave you on your own. He says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. What about the injured sheep? What about the sheep that's sick and maybe isn't walking as fast as the others? What's he going to do? I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Now, do you think the God who searches for the lost brings back the strays, binds up the injured and strengthens the weak, then goes into his vineyard and sees a branch that's trailing on the ground and it's got a bit dirty and he just chops it off? That's not God. That is not consistent with the character of God throughout the Bible. And I just do not believe that this verse can be translated, he cuts off any branch in me that's not bearing fruit. I cannot take that and I can tell you that a vast number of modern scholars and commentary writers can't take it either. How does this affect how we try to help people? What about those whose lives are a bit of a mess? Do we just discard them? What about those who, and we know that they are currently in the dirt not bearing much fruit, but there's still a connection. There's still a connection to the vine. But they find themselves in the dirt. What do we do, church, for those people? Do we discard them? Are we showing the character of God ourselves? Are we bearing fruit ourselves by discarding brothers and sisters who are getting it tough? Or will we lift them up? Will we go to them? And lovingly help them to get out of the dirt and back up to where they can receive the light and the life of God. Do not discard those branches that have become downtrodden. The world is full of downtrodden branches. And if you have a chance in your life, in your line of work, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your circle of friends, if you have people around you and you know that they are downtrodden, do not look at them and say, there's no fruit in your life. You might as well just be discarded. Help them up. Help them up. Because by doing so, you're showing the character of God who washes away the dirt and lifts up the branches. It is so important that we have a correct understanding of the character of God. I'm nearly done. The thing that made Jesus most angry was whenever the religious leaders misrepresented God. 
and the thing you read some people talk about God in the Old Testament, this this angry God. Do you know when God's angry in the Old Testament? He's angry with his own people who fail to show the world what he's like. One of the things that I bear in mind about my work, I work with teenagers, I spend four years with them, and if I teach them, I'll see them every day for those four years, pretty much. And a thought that haunts me is that at the end of those four years, some of those kids might go away into adulthood thinking, I was taught chemistry by a guy for four years who was a Christian. If the way he lives is what God is like, then I don't want to follow God. Do we realize the responsibility of bearing fruit that people will look at our lives, they will taste the grapes, and they will decide whether they want to follow God based on how we do it. I want the kids that I teach in my work, I want my own children, I want my friends, I want people to look at me and say, if that's what God is like, not perfect, definitely not, but that could look for a prolonged period and say, if that's what God's like, then God's good. I want people to walk into this church whenever whenever the doors open again and we start coming together again as a community to, to eat together and to worship him together. I want people to walk in and say, if that's what God's like, I want to be part of that. Too many people in Northern Ireland have looked at religion and they have said, if that's what God's like, I want nothing to do with it. And I agree with them because I want nothing to do with it either. I want an authentic representation of the character of God. God does not cut off the downtrodden branch. You're too valuable. From, from the very early days of Genesis 3, Satan has been trying to misrepresent God. Right from that first conversation with Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Did he really say this would happen? Satan misrepresents God. Jesus gets angry with the religious leaders that misrepresent God. God gets angry with his people that misrepresent him. We have a responsibility and a privilege and an opportunity in this life as followers of Jesus to bear fruit, to do what Israel did not do so that we become Israel. We become the true people of God, connected to the vine, drawing life from him and bearing fruit that causes the world to say, I want that. I want that. I want that life that you have. So our two main points for today before we pick up next week. One is the point that Jesus is not just talking about gardening. He is declaring that he has replaced Israel. And two, that I believe that God does not cut off branches in the vine that are finding it tough to bear fruit, but that instead it would be more accurate to say he lifts them up.